Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. What an honor it is to kick off this new year uh, and to share God's Word with you. I must say that this was a very uh, easy sermon to prepare for uh, because Pastor Jesse and Pastor Ben made a sermon schedule. So I, they told me exactly uh, which passage to preach, and they even gave me a title. And the title is, I Believe in God. Uh, so there was not much flexibility, but this is an incredible text. Um, and there's so much to say. And um, I, I pray that we'll be deeply encouraged and God will give us insight uh, to what um, some of the things that Acts chapter 17 communicates to us. And I do believe that if we take it to heart, uh, not only will we grow in insight, but we'll grow in great confidence of what God can do through us to bless this world and amazing things can happen in 2020. Uh, with that said, let's bow our heads in prayer, ask the Lord to bless this time, and let's ask him for the illumination that his spirit brings to us. Gracious and loving Father, we commit this time to you, and we confess that without your light, we grope in midday as blind people, but by your spirit, we can see, and not only see, but feel in our hearts the great love and the great mercy and the great faithfulness that you have given to us. And through that, we can grow in confidence by your leading to bless this world. So we pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word for the sake of Jesus, our Lord. Um, and we commit this time to you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the sermon is entitled, I Believe in God. And when I look at this passage, I would make that actually um, in, in an incredibly plural form, we believe in God. And I'm not just referring to Paul and his companions who say, we believe in God. I'm referring also to the Athenians because they too believe in the gods. And I would expand that even further to say that anyone created, if they're honest, in that moment of lucidity, they too will say, we believe in God. There was a great theologian a long time ago in the 16th century by the name of John Calvin, and he coined a little phrase, and the phrase is sensus divinitatis, and that translates into a sense of divinity or a sense of deity. And his point is that everyone has a sense of divinity deep within their hearts. And this makes perfect sense because when you look at the Apostle Paul, not just from this text, but from other texts, particularly Romans chapter 1 and 2, he says that the knowledge of God is evident within all people. And the knowledge of God, in fact, is so evident within people that it swells up. It's like a geyser. It's rising. But what we do as unrighteous people is we suppress that knowledge down, even though that knowledge is swelling up within us. And the reason why he says that is because we're created in the image of God. And because we are created in the image of God, we ourselves are the hallmark of createdness. That is to say, everything that is created in this world presupposes a creator. And so therefore, everything in this universe shouts, made by God. And so that divinity is indelibly imprinted in our hearts. So when we are honest with ourselves, even the most strident atheist basically believes in God. 
And when you parse the atheist's life and presuppositions and assumptions and thoughts and actions, they will be completely inconsistent because they will say with their mouths, I don't believe in God, but their lives will reflect that they actually do believe in God. And it has to be that way because God created everything and his image is imprinted on us and everything that is created in this world. And so there's a great missionary uh, by the name of J.H. Bavink. I used to read him in seminary, and he was a missionary um, to Indonesia. And as he was there and as he was analyzing society and looking at culture, he says there's a funny feeling that God was here already. And indeed, God has been there working in the hearts of the people. And as the Apostle Paul is walking around Athens, he sees that the people are groping for God. And there's an ignorance to that, of course, but nevertheless, that impulse to believe in God is truly there. And the implications of that are tremendous, absolutely tremendous, especially when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith. And I, I would say if you're typical of most Christians, uh, there is a little bit of a fear in sharing your faith because uh, our culture has somehow ingrained it upon us that we should not share our faith, and if we do, we might be seen as intolerant or narrow-minded, or most of the world uh, doesn't believe in God, or they think it's foolish. But when you look at a passage like this, actually everyone is groping for God. It's just the opposite. And not only that, uh, we're working with the stream of divinity because the knowledge of God is swelling up within them. So when we share our faith, and when we encourage people with the things of God, it will resonate with them on some level. And therefore, there will be success on some level. And the seeds that we sow will produce a harvest in God's perfect time. It's hardwired into humanity. It's hardwired into culture. It's there. It's always been there. And it will always be there until the Lord returns. I mean, one of the best books I've ever read on this topic, and I highly recommend this book. So if you want a book recommendation, of course, Soul Care is a great book, and I read it, and I highly recommend that. But if you want a second recommendation, read The Peace Child. Uh, the Peace Child by Don Richardson. And this is an amazing book of a missionary in the 60s that went to Papua New Guinea to reach a cannibalistic tribe, the Sawi people. And he went there, and as, as soon as he got off on that boat, he says, you know, darkness came upon me, malaria came upon me, and the spirits there were saying to his heart, you have no right here, you have no power here, you, have, you must leave, you will fail. But because he really believed in God, he entrenched himself, he dug in his heels, and he and his family and his little child came to minister to them. And as they were preaching the gospel, he realized something, that this was a really an inverted uh, worldview. So when they gave the gospel story, the people cheered, not at the death and resurrection of Jesus. They cheered, and they said the hero of the story is actually Judas, because Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. And within that worldview, treachery was a virtue. So you, you fatten your enemy by being treacherous, and then you feast on him, literally, by eating him. Right? This is a cannibalistic society. And to be completely honest with you, one of my students' uh, uncle uh, went there as an anthropologist and died, and most likely he was eaten by cannibals. So this is, this is real. This is within some of our lifetimes. And so 
This is the worldview that Don Richardson and his family is ministering to. The treachery of Judas is way up here. And Jesus is just a fool because he was had, he was gotten, right? He was the, the object of treachery. And so at one point, ministry became so difficult for him. And he says, you know, you guys are warring against each other. and You shouldn't be doing that anymore. And he, and he gave them a threat. Maybe it was, you know, a fake threat. But nevertheless, they grew a liking to him because he gave a lot of benefits. And says, if you don't make peace amongst the tribes and stop killing each other, then we're going to leave. We're going to pack up our mission and we're going to go because you guys are not listening at all. And you're just killing each other. And so it really struck a chord in their heart. And there's a concept of the peace child within their culture. And in order to make tr a peace between warring villages, you have to give your son to the other village. And if you do that, there will be lasting peace. And a lot of leaders said, we will do this. But they all backed out because they couldn't give their one and only beloved son. But someone says, we need peace because we need this person to be here. So the man runs to the other village and gives that child to the other village. And they realized uh, that that child will be, of course, taken care of well, but Don Richardson realized that's the hallmark of divinity planted in this culture. And so he said, Jesus is this peace child. And not only is this Jesus this peace child, but there was treachery upon his life because though he was born to bring peace to humanity, he was crucified, and now he's the resurrected Lord. So everyone knows God. The hallmarks of divinity and the hallmarks and the stories of redemption and mercy and love are printed in our hearts. So today I'm saying I believe in God. I'm saying most of you believe in God. But what I am also saying is, in another sense, we all believe in God. The advertiser of Madison Avenue, who looks so dapper, believes in God. And the person on Wall Street, who's in finance, believes in God. And the scientist uptown, working on neuroscience and looking at little tiny things that I don't even know the names of, that person too believes in God. The minister believes in the God. The person in a different continent believes in God. And that's a fact. And so the Apostle Paul is walking on the streets of Athens and he sees a city filled with idols. And he says, well, they believe in God. He sees an altar to an unknown God. And he says, well, they certainly believe in God. Then he quotes some poets. The poet's name is Erratus. It's not written in the text. But that poet says, we are his offspring. And, and Paul says, yes, in a sense, we are his offspring because he created all things. And we live and move in him. And so we can say, I think, with full confidence that we all believe in God. Now, I think the implications of that are even more tremendous for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so if you are a Christian, we believe in the God of creation uh, the God of redemption, the God who brings forgiveness, the God who is near, God Emmanuel, and we believe in the God who will consummate all things when he returns and sets everything wrong right. 
And, and so one implication of that I think is very important because we're going to be looking through the Apostles' Creed. That's sort of the, the shape of the preaching for the next couple of months. And what that means from a really practical point of view is because we all believe in that God of the scriptures, there must be greater unity amongst believers in Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you a little uh, story about my, myself. When I was a young minister, I was, I was really smitten with the, the theology of the reformers. Uh, so I read as much Luther, uh, the theologian Martin Luther from the 16th century as possible. And I read Calvin as much as possible. And, you know, I am transferring into um, the Dutch Reformed Church, the CRC. And that started in seminary too, because I read every, everything I could get my hands on of uh, Hermann Bavink. And so these people really shaped my, my worldview. And as sort of a quote-unquote convert to Reformed theology as a 20-year-old man, uh, you become very zealous. Uh, and so I became very zealous for Reformed theology, and I quickly realized that not all Christians have a Reformed theological worldview. And secretly in my heart, I thought they were like kind of second class, right? Because they were not reformed. And there was a silent judgment that went out. And I tried to convince people of uh, reformed theology. I'm, I'm no longer like that, but I still do believe in reformed theology. I, th I think it's one of the pinnacles of theological reflection. And I think the Dutch expression of it is really powerful and very cogent. That said, the Holy Spirit taught me something. And what, what the Spirit of God taught me was unity, not because you necessarily agree with people, right? Unity, not necessarily because you worship in the same way that they worship or vice versa. Unity, not because you even like them. It's unity because you believe in the same God. It's unity for the sake of God. It's unity for the sake of the Holy Spirit. It's unity for the sake of Christ, and so the, the application and the resonance for the believers who believe in Scripture and the God of Scripture, they ought to be unity amongst us, amongst the other churches um, in New York City. I'll, I'll say a little more about that towards the end when I talk about the missional thrust of this passage. But uh, hold that in thought because that should be one of the natural corollaries that there should be unity because uh, we all believe in God. But I also want to encourage you that when you share your faith and declare the things that God has done, it will resonate because uh, God created all people and that storyline is embedded um, in their very DNA. Now, if we're going to do justice to this passage, we also have to say, yes, everyone believes in God, but... There's confusion there, right? So if you look at the Apostle Paul's uh, description of Athens, these are philosophers, and indeed, this is the city of Socrates. This is the city of Plato. Uh, so if you think about Western philosophy in a very real sense, uh, this is the epicenter of Western philosophy. And right in the beginning, who's he talking with? He's talking with these Epicureans and these Stoics, right? So these schools of philosophical thought in the ancient world. And he observes, and there's not like one idol, there's like hundreds of idols, maybe thousands of idols. And there's a whole pantheon of gods and there's a multiplicity of beliefs. 
And it's even outrageous because Paul says, I even noticed that altar to that unknown God. And they're just saying to themselves, well, just in case we miss somebody, let's create this altar to this unknown God so that that God won't be offended. So it's all over the place. So Paul is saying, yeah, there, there is confusion there. Uh, so yes, everyone believes in God, but there is a healthy bit of confusion. And we see that right from the beginning because... The NIV says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Now, I don't think distressed is actually a good translation uh, for the NIV. I know the translators of the NIV are smarter than I am. They have more experience, but I would say that is a poor translation. Uh, the ESV translates it far better. He says that they were provoked. The Apostle Paul was provoked. But I don't think provoked is actually even a great translation either. The Greek word is paroxuno, and is only used twice in the whole New Testament. One time it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love, okay? And love is not easily angered. That is a good translation. Love is not easily angered. Uh, to say love is not distressed, that's kind of weak, right? Uh, be a loving person, don't be distressed. No, be a loving person and don't be angry. That's far better. It fits that context. So if we take that word, put it into this context, the Apostle Paul was angered. He was provoked and he was angry as he was looking at a city filled with idols. Now think about it. In the, in the Old Testament, if you see an idol and you are a prophet of God, you're not like, oh, I'm a little distressed at this idolatry. No, this idolatry is going to ruin my people and ruin my nation. And it's going to bring judgment upon it. It's anger. Uh, so the Apostle Paul is looking at a city filled with idols, and he is angry. Now, we have to get something clear here. The Apostle Paul is not angry at the people. God is not angry at the people in a sense because we see the compassion and the mercy of God. God even says in past times, God overlooked these things, but now God says you need to believe. So we see an, inc an incredible stream and a wideness of the mercy of God. And as I was reading this passage all over again, I really had to think about this idea of God overlooking <coughs> the Greeks um, and they're groping for God. I'm not prepared to go on record to say anything, but I, you know, I, w I really want to focus on that, that idea. But what I can say in the least is we see the mercy of God. We also see the love of the Apostle Paul. Why is he here? He is here because he wants to bring the gospel, and he's on this missionary journey, <coughs> excuse me, and it has not been easy. And yet he beats his body, um, and he continues this mission for the sake of Christ, of course, but because also he loves the Athenians. But he is still angry. He's angry at the idolatry, and I think it really boils down to this idea of spiritual warfare. So the Apostle Paul, as he is in Athens, he sees that there is a, a spiritual dimension. There's something more than meets the eye. So it's not just stone and metal, and hence, waha, voila, an idol behind that is a spiritual realm. And he sees the spiritual realm, and he is provoked. He is angry. And so he's going to engage in warfare, but this warfare is not against flesh and blood, as he will write for us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. It's against a spiritual realm. And therefore, we see all throughout Paul's missionary journeys, this, 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 this beat, this rhythm, right? 
on spiritual warfare. And so when he's in Corinth, a city very similar to this, but probably wealthier, and, you know, it's Mammon who is kind of enthroned as a top dog um, in, uh, in, in, in Corinth. And what does it say? It's the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the gospel in Jesus Christ. So he's not saying, well, it's just these idols, that's the problem. No, what the problem is, there's something behind these idols and there are spiritual forces at play. And in particular, it's the God of this world that has blinded them so they will not be able to see the good news of the gospel. So when he is in, in Athens, he's angered because he sees the spiritual reality and he's going to fight that spiritual reality by his presence, by his worship by his prayer, and by his mission, which gives us great insight again. I mean, I think we can say, um, if you've been a Christian for a while, there are certain times and places and seasons where you feel there's an openness to our hearts, and there's an openness to the, the hearts of the people that you minister to, and there's times where it just seems so closed. And why is it? Well, if we think in a natural level, it's like, well, probably because like the music was really good and the lighting was perfect or whatever. But if you look at it from a spiritual perspective, it really is about the spiritual climate and the spiritual atmosphere. There are times when the Spirit of God is there. When the Spirit of God is there, there is conviction. When the Spirit of God is there, there is repentance. When the Spirit of God is there, there is confession. When the Spirit of God there is there, there is generosity, and there's selflessness, and there's love, and mercy always triumphs over judgment in those contexts. But when the Spirit of God is not there because there isn't that hunger for God, then there's, there's closeness, right? So the best thing that we can do, and we see this in Paul's ministry as well, is to saturate yourselves in the things of God. So wherever you go, there, there's this huge window that's open, and heaven's gate floods in, and the Spirit of God and the, and, and the Word of God penetrate. And this is why Paul, the Apostle Paul says, wherever he goes, pray for me. Pray for boldness in the preaching of the gospel, because Paul knows it's not about eloquence. It's not about his rhetorical training in the past or knowing certain things or knowing certain poets and acting smart. He knows that the only way he's going to be successful is when the Spirit of God is there. And just as we learned in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God is personal, he is powerful, and he is present, and he is the one that we need to be successful in ministry. And Paul shows us that, and this is what we call spiritual warfare. And so what we want is an opening of heaven. We want an opening of hearts. And the Apostle Paul even writes that to the Church of Corinthians. When the Spirit of God is there, people will walk in, their hearts would be laid bare, and they will say, the non-believer, God is in this place. And that's what we want. And we can have it. And when our, our eyes are keen to that, we will be able to see it, in fact, at times. We will sense it in our hearts. And that will give us great boldness. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> This summer I did a lot of building, uh, that is to say physical carpentry. And one day <clears throat> I said to myself, well, I'm going to do some good work today. So I probably worked uh, maybe six or seven, ten hours maybe even. Um, so I just built all these things and I was like, oh, I'm so tired now, i got to leave. So it was probably about nine o'clock at night, working all day. And I had a couple of tools in my hand 
And I walked uh, from 90th Street to 96th Street, <clears throat> waiting for the bus, and I just missed the bus. And I was so frustrated. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a Sunday night. It's, it's, this is tough. Oh, I just missed the bus. All right? Then I looked at my phone on the MTA app. Ten minutes. It's like, no, ten minutes for the next bus. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just call it, you know, uh, an Uber. But I said, like, no, I will wait for the bus. And there was one young man there. And I, I really believe God, God spoke to me. And uh, God says, you have to change this man's life by sharing the gospel with this person. I was like, God, you know, it's like, I'm tired, you know. But then I was like, all right. Three minutes passed, and I was like, I got seven minutes. So I was kind of like frustrated, but I knew I had to be obedient. So I told this guy, I got seven minutes to share the gospel with you, so tell me about yourself. The bus is coming in seven minutes. We have some time, so tell me about your life. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm doing this. I'm thinking about going to school. And it's like, where are you going? I was like, oh, I'm going to visit my girlfriend. And I said, I got good news for you that God loves you. And uh, if you just listen to, to what I say, and if it resonates in your heart and you believe, it will change your life. And believe it or not, this young guy says, yeah, I have time. I want, I want to believe. And at the end, I said, you want me to pray for you? And he says, yes, please pray for me. So I lay my hands and I pray for this guy. And he was added to God's kingdom. And the bus came, and he went away. I said, email me, and I'll, I'll tell you what good church to go to. I was hoping that he would email. He did not email me, to be honest. Otherwise, he would probably be at City Grace. <laughs> <clears throat> but things happen like that often um, when we are open to God because we carry God's presence. Even in this passage, it says very clearly, God does not dwell uh, in temples made with human hands, which is very significant. Um, especially in the book of Acts, because, well, I won't get into the academics of it, uh, but all we can say is that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever we go, we bring God's presence. And so where we go, God is there, and wherever God is, he opens the hearts of people. He invariably does. And I don't want to give you the impression that one story is like out of the ordinary. You know, things happen like that often when we see God when we are open to God, and when we are willing to be God's people. Um, so, atmospheres. Atmospheres change when we bring God there. Paul is in Athens to change the atmosphere of Athens, and Athens changes. I mean, one of the leaders, uh, Dionysus, becomes a believer, right? So, something amazing has certainly happened because he was provoked. Paul didn't fight people. He fought the devils. And he won because Christ is our victor. All right. Now, we come to the most important point, I think. And the most important point is, I think, an architectonic principle of all of Scripture, and that is we are all in missions. Right? We're on missions. That's a fact. Apostle Paul is here simply because he's on a mission, because he took seriously the words of Christ, go into all the world and baptize them and, and uh, you know, bring the gospel to them and teach them. So he's doing that very thing. So he's a, he's a missionary at heart. And what Paul is doing is not something that's reserved for an elite few. Uh, what Paul is doing is what we all should be doing. And if we are on missions... Um, I think two things will happen, right? Uh, 
And I think apart from missions, these two things will not happen, okay? What are those two things? I think if we're on mission, we will see very clearly, you ready for this? Who the enemy is. If we are not on missions, we will not know who our enemy is. If we are not on mission, you know who the enemy is? Other believers. <laughs> if we're not on missions, our roommate is our enemy. If we're not on mission, our spouses may be our enemies for a season, right? If we're not on missions, our coworkers will definitely be our enemy. If we're not on missions, no doubt the boss, whoever your boss is, is an enemy. And if we're not on mission, you know, we'll even say maybe we ourselves are our own enemies, okay? But if we are on missions, we will clearly see who the enemy is. Paul was angered in this passage because he saw the enemy at work. And he's going to do something about it. And he's going to teach other believers how to do it. Right? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? We will see clearly who the enemy is. And number two, this is just the opposite, so this logical progression, we will see who the allies are. And you know who our allies are? All believers. That means... The Methodist is an ally. The Presbyterian is an ally, right? The Baptist is an ally. The Catholic is an ally. The, the monk, uh, <laughs> some, some of us went on missions to serve. The monks in the Peloponnesus, they are allies. The Russian Orthodox Church, you know, right, next, right, right behind my block where I live, allies. Now, I'm not saying that all of them believe in the same thing that we do, but there will be a remnant in all of those groups. They are our allies. And because the shape of the church is not missional, um, we fail to see who the enemy is, and we fail to see who our allies are. And this is a real sad commentary, because God has given the church everything it needs multiplied by like a million to accomplish the mission, but because we are not on mission... Okay? We don't know who the enemy is. We're befuddled. And we don't know who our allies are. And so we are very inefficient. And we're not effective in doing the work of God because sin gets into it. And every church and every minister wants to be famous. And every church and every minister uh, wants glory for their name. And the only paradigm that they have is a paradigm of branding because they grew up and drank in uh, in you know, huge volumes, uh, a consumeristic mindset and culture. And so bigger is better, and fame is better than humility. And so at the end, we get almost nothing done, even though we have every resource multiplied by a million to finish the mission of God. And so secular organizations are far more uh, uh, efficient and more effective in carrying out their vision than the church. Now, to be completely honest, because this Holy Spirit loves the church and causes people to repent, the church has grown. But if the people of the church and the believers in Christ will simply come before God and lay their hearts bare and let God transform and purify their passions and their vision, everything would be so much faster. There would be an acceleration that the world has never seen because God is on missions. And God wants to reach the world. And he's everywhere. And he's doing it. We just have to follow. 
Let me give you a little quotation here, and I won't tell you what organization it is. I'll let you guess, and I will tell you afterwards. Our mission is, right from their website, to refresh the world in body, mind, and spirit, to inspire movements of optimism and happiness through our brands and our actions, to create value and to make a difference. Can anyone guess what organization this is? Coca-Cola. <laughs> I'd like to give the world a Coke. And so, little boy, you know, walks down the street, maybe in an Arabic language, Coke, it's there. It's, uh, you know, a little girl in a little city, uh, speaking in, say, maybe Vietnamese, a Coke, wherever you go, Coca-Cola's there. I'll give you a story. Uh, I had a professor once who was an archaeologist, and this is about McDonald's. Same thing about McDonald's. It's everywhere. They were um, in this remote archaeological site, and they were toiling away. The sun was beating down, and they were just so uncomfortable, and they're like, oh, I, I could just go for you know, a nice cold uh, soda, like a Coke or something, right? Or I can go for some, you know, French fries. And so they were, they were, they were in this, this desert, right? And they were going over this dune. And as they were going over this dune, they look up and they see two golden arches. <laughs> and they're like, is this a mirage? No, truly, it was a McDonald's in the desert. And so this archaeological team, they were able to get McDonald's in the desert. That's a mission. That is a mission. Uh, so I think, the, I think the church has a lot to learn from these organizations that are very missional. What drives them? It's their God, Mammon. What if God gets a hold of our hearts? We, will, we would be everywhere. And the world would be completely different. And this mission statement would be true of the church, that we would refresh the world. We would give life. It's, refresh is not even strong. We will give life to the world in mind, body, and spirit. Right? We would do that when we are on missions. And so when we are on missions, we, uh, we see... Uh, who the enemy is, clearly, it's the devil. And we will fight the devil. And we will see clearly who our allies are. And it all, all comes from, actually, the beginning of um, the Apostles' Creed. It is the most ancient creed of the church, right? I believe in God, or we believe in God. And these are some of the implications of what it means to believe in God. Now, I think this is kind of more of an intellectual message in the sense that um, it, it's, it's calling for a change of mind, okay? Um, so let me try to bring it down a little bit to the practical level, and then we'll close, okay? Uh, so a little change of mind. I want you guys to know who the enemy is and who our allies are, so we might have to kind of rethink. One of the things I've been doing is um, 
meditating through the Proverbs uh, during my break. So I think I'm on Proverbs 24 now or something. It's been wonderful. And one of the great Proverbs says, where there is, uh, where there is dissension, there is pride. Pretty good proverb. Where there is dissension, there is pride. Where there is quarreling and arguing, there is pride. Uh, gives us a little perspective. And the reason why um, I, I bring that up is because there is a spirit behind all of these things. And, and, and so I want to challenge us, not just on an intellectual level, uh, but to look at our hearts, right, and lay them bare before God. What, what are those areas where we need to um, experience God's change and transformation. Um, so with that openness of heart, um, we can be more effective uh, ministers of God. So intellectually, let's change those things that we need to change. Uh, may God steal in our minds that uh, the church is a wideness of allies that we would love and treat charitably and, and love and work together. Um, let's also know who the enemy is. Let's know that everyone knows God and let's have boldness to share the gospel uh, to a world that is gnawing after God, whether they know it or not. Um, and uh, let's be on mission. And practically speaking, let there be an openness to God to know that there's a spirit world. And, and so it's not just I must try harder or I need to tweak these things in my life, uh, but there are spirits there. And so where there is dissension, it's rooted in your pride. And what abets that pride? Well, the devil. The devil loves for you to become more proud. And, and so he whispers, be proud. You have every right to be angry. Look what you did. And look what she did or he did. And so just throws coals on that fire. But let's also be more practical and just have an openness to God. And maybe we can have the worship team come on up as I close and we can play a little music and use this time to come before God and lay our hearts bare, and also ask God for courage and, and openness of sight uh, so that we, our hearts can be angered at the idolatry and the captivity that there is in this world so that we would do something about it, uh, that we would take steps of faith, knowing that everyone is seeking after God to minister and bless people. Uh, so why don't, as the worship team plays a little bit, let's, let's think on these things. We have our prayer ministers the periphery of the room, and so they'll be happy to pray for you. Um, sometimes I think that freedom comes um, when we take that step of faith to say, I need prayer. All right, so oftentimes I think people are convicted, so you give a couple of minutes and they feel, yeah, God, I feel convicted. But I think sometimes what's more honoring to God is to translate that conviction into your legs and you walk to somebody and say, you know, I, I don't feel courage. You know, Pastor Ben gave a great message last week. Uh, pray that God will give me courage. And that prayer person will be a means of grace that God uses to strengthen you so that you will have strength. Uh, or, you know, maybe the Spirit of God is convicting you. I am a provincial person, and I am petty. And so, unless it's done my way, I just can't get behind it. If that's you, I would... Get up and walk and I say, hey, you know, pray, pray for me that I, I'm broad-minded um, so that I can work with everyone um, and I can bless people. And, you know, God will work in that and change you. He, he really will. There, there's power 
when people come together. And this is why the book of James says, you have to confess your sins and there will be healing, right? Sometimes you just got to do it, right? And it doesn't have to be a scary thing. If it becomes the culture of the church, it'll be the most natural thing. And the minister will do it just as the people because we all need prayer, right? We all need uh, to be healed of our dysfunctions in one way or another. So I'm going to encourage you, um, whatever the Lord places upon your heart, pray for those things and also have the courage to ask for prayer as well. So let's use a couple of moments uh, for this. Let's, uh, let's move into this time. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you for this time. And we pray, Lord God, that you would open the floodgates of heaven uh, upon your temple church, um, all of us, and may favor and presence and power uh, rest upon your people, Lord God. And I pray that you would encourage us from our inner being uh, so that we would believe in, in you and the reality of God would be stronger than anything that we can touch or see or taste or hear. And that reality, Lord God, would be the impetus and the motivation for stepping out in faith, uh, conquering fear and conquering inhibitions uh, to serve and love people, Lord God. And I pray that you would even provoke us on the streets of New York uh, to call down strongholds and tear it down for the sake of Christ. And 
Open up our mouths and loosen our actions to be a blessing, Lord God. Uh, Lord, I want to pray for uh, people here, Lord God, that uh, might be um, struggling um, in different things. I pray that you would give them the knowledge of hope, uh, that in you, Lord God, there is victory over everything. And I pray that 2020 would be a year of victory, Lord God. Uh, I pray that you would do it by your spirit. Break chains and bring victory. And I pray, Lord God, just as a uh, Pastor Ben preached last week with Gideon with his small victories, which required faith. I pray that you would breathe faith, give the gift of faith to this congregation. And even if they start small, uh, to take that chainsaw and rip down that Asherah pole, uh, then go for the uh, 150,000 Midianites. Uh, so I pray that there would be these victories rooted in these steps of faith, even a stutter step, Lord God, I pray that you would honor uh, a standing for you that you would honor, Lord God, and a word that you would honor. And I pray that they would know beyond a shadow of doubt uh, that you have given that victory to them. And I pray that that cycle will repeat all throughout 2020 and beyond, Lord God, that we would be the church triumphant um, here. So bless this community, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.